Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our executive pastor, Manny Colazzo. So, a few weeks ago, the, the day before demolition started in the grill, what is now the fellowship hall, the staff had been mentioning, hey, we want to have some fun breaking some stuff down. And so that evening after a meeting, I brought out a mini sledgehammer from our utility closet and we started taking turns on one of the countertops. And everything was going well until it was my turn. I should have known better. I don't even know why I tried. The thought went through my head, don't do this. You know what happens every time you pick up a tool. Nothing constructive happens. But that thought was dismissed so quickly. I thought, hey, this is demo. What, what, what could go wrong? I mean, everybody else is gone. It doesn't seem that hard. Well, I took one swing with that sledgehammer, went through the counter and whack right on my shin. I played it off. You know, I got my st- the staff around me. I can't, you know, that show that I'm hurting. I didn't even limp, but I walked off to the side and everybody's like, man, what's, that's weird. Pastor Manny just takes one swing and they hadn't seen what happened. But Pastor Riley caught it on tape. I don't want to see that video. I don't want to see that video flying around, okay? Don't, don't, don't. So, you know, as the other staff started swinging, I, you know, said, hey, um, you guys, take it easy. You know, watch your shins. <laughs> and I pulled up my pant leg. You could see a little knot begin to form, a little trickle of blood, and I just played it off. And <laughs> a little bit later, about an hour later, I get home. My wife and I are laying in bed. You know what the, the calf looks like on the back of your leg? Imagine that reversed. It looked like I had a calf on my shin. Well, this morning I plan on staying in my pastoral lane, so I, don't, I think I'll be safe trying to illustrate my point with this screwdriver, all right? I mean, what could go wrong? Yeah, you've never seen me handle a tool. But if you see me doing something wrong, something dangerous, feel free to, Pastor Manny, that does not look safe. Stop right there. It's one of the most common tools in a, in a toolbox. You use it by taking the tip and inserting it into the head of a screw and applying pressure in the direction that you want that screw to go in, and you begin to twist. There have been many times where I've attempted to use a screwdriver to drive a, a screw into a wall because we're trying to hang a, uh, a frame. Seems sounds pretty easy for you, not for me. You should see the damage that I've done trying to just drill, put a, a, a screw into a wall. But there were many times where I exceeded my abilities when I hit a stud, some sheet metal, or a brick. And before I realized what was happening, I realized that what I needed to do was apply more pressure. And I was applying more pressure, trying to spin, but I hit that wall. What, what's that called when you when you pull out the drill then and you put it up and, and you begin to twist the little knob at the end of the drill and you increase, what's that pressure called when you're driving that? Anybody know? 
It's called torque. Torque is that, that force that's needed in order to twist or to spin around an axis. Other examples of torque are when you take a key and insert it into a door and you begin to turn that key using a wrench to loosen or tighten some lug nuts. Or when you're on a bike, cranking those pedals on a bike, all that is our examples of torque. Ever have trouble opening a jar? Well, you get yourself a textured rag or a towel, you wrap it around the top. That rag enables you to get a firm grip on the slick top and by applying the right amount of torque, it pops open. Could you use some torque in your life? Maybe you've been patient, patiently waiting and praying, but by now so much time has passed that you're hanging on by a thread and your patience is slipping. Sounds like you need some torque. You're in a tough spot. You must make a tough business or job or a relational decision. You're analyzing, you've sought some counsel, and you've realized that this decision is gonna cost you, so you're getting cold feet. You're stuck in the paralysis of analysis. You're just not able to generate enough torque to break through. Or perhaps you're feeling under the gun, feeling pressured by circumstances or, or maybe even a person to compromise your values or convictions. You lack the torque to stand your ground. Well, in our lives, faith is what produces spiritual torque. It's the way to get a firm grip on the promises of God. What is faith? And how does it produce torque in our lives? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 showcases the stories of 17 people from biblical history as examples of how to live a life of faith successfully. The very first verse gives us a definition or a description of faith. What is faith? It says, it is the confident assurance that something we want is going to happen. It is certainty that what we hope for is waiting for us, even though we can't see it up ahead. But how does it work? How did faith generate torque in the lives of these 17 people? This is important because we might make the mistake of equating faith to wishful thinking. Cross my fingers, cross my heart, I hope to die. That's faith or, or positive vibes. Hey, I believe in you. You got it. I got faith in you. Or maybe even uninformed, naive sincerity. But no. A little bit further in this chapter, it explains in verse 6 that their faith was firmly grounded in two truths. And it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who comes to him must, one, believe that God exists, and two, that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. These two truths, God is real, and God rewards, was the basis 
of faith for the 17 people listed in Hebrews chapter 11. Regardless of their circumstances or their challenges that they faced, they were certain that God was real, even though they couldn't see him. And they were certain that God would reward them by fulfilling the promises he had made to them, even if those promises didn't materialize in their lifetime. And so what is faith? Faith is the certainty that God is real and God rewards. God is real and God rewards. How about you? Have you settled these two essential truths? You see, God is real and God rewards. That's the ground zero, the very foundation of faith. It makes no sense to try to believe in anything else if you're still struggling or wondering, is God real? Is he good? Does he really keep his promises? Does he really reward? See, it's possible that your faith is more like wishful thinking if you hadn't settled God is real and God is good or he rewards. Could this be the reason why your faith lacks the strength to punch through, to endure, that settled confidence because it's not based on anything else. It's just wishful thinking. You see, but once you wrestle these two truths to the ground, your faith will generate all the torque you need to go the distance, to not give up when the going gets tough, to push through insurmountable obstacles, to confidently obey God even when it feels like you're risking it all. And because Pastor Nate has been taking us through Exodus with Moses as a central character, I thought it'd be good for us to look at two examples from this chapter. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 23, we'll look at Moses' parents. Prior to settling in Egypt, remember that God had made certain promises to Israel. Specifically, these promises, he promised to multiply their population to be as numerous as the stars and as numerous as the sand on the seashore. By the way, one of those that would come through their line was Jesus, their Messiah. So as God made this promise, they were also, he was also referring to there is this Messiah, this deliverer coming to rescue you. He also committed to give them a land to call home the promised land, which through the book of Hebrews, we get insight that the land to them also represented heaven. But in general, these promises meant that God would reward them, protect them, and provide for them. These promises were first made to Abraham, and the anticipation, the, the hope of their fulfillment was successively passed down the family line from Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, also known as Israel, and then to Jacob's 12 sons, who were known as the 12 families or the 12 tribes of Israel and beyond. Well, if you were here when Pastor Nate took us through that, the book of Exodus opens with Jacob's 12 sons and their families settling in Egypt. And God begins to keep his promise to expand them. Their growth was so rapid that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, noticed that Israel's birth rate was outpacing Egypt's. And he was afraid that the Israelites would overpower the Egyptians, so he oppressed them. He classified them as slaves and ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill all the male children upon delivery. 
The problem was that these ladies feared God. They didn't do what he said, so Israel's population continued to grow exponentially. And finally, in a move of desperation and frustration, Pharaoh gave this order. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Could you imagine that? Imagine some command, hey, any boy that is born out of any of the local hospitals, Monterey Bay. This infanticidal command gives us a glimpse into the dark and oppressive, perilous world into which Moses was born. But this was the very command that Hebrews 11 verse 23 says that Moses' parents disobeyed. Read it with me. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. Now, the people who were reading this section of scripture would have been familiar with Moses' life. I'm sure they already knew that his parents, Amram and Jochebed, preserved his life by placing him in a basket and setting it in the Nile River. And so instead of retelling the entire story, the author focuses in verse 23 on how his parents mustered the courage to defy the king's command. How did they do it? By faith. But how did it work? How did faith generate the force, the strength for them to not give in to, to fear, to not cower in the face of this powerful man and his command? After all, they didn't understand all that God had in store for their son. They didn't know that Moses would grow up to be the deliverer from Egyptian slavery and the leader towards the promised land. But every time they looked into the eyes of their baby boy, they saw he had the it factor. They couldn't quite put their finger on all that it meant but it gave them the idea that God had a plan. And Moses would have a part in it, even though this newborn life was being threatened. And you know what else? But you know what they were really certain of? Faith is the certainty that God is real and God rewards. And so the lesson that Moses' parents teach us has to do with how faith affected their relationship to authority. See, their faith in this instance emboldened them to overcome fear and bravely obey God. Their faith emboldened them to overcome fear and bravely obey God. As people of faith, we'll also encounter moments where we cannot obey the commands of those in authority over us. I call these instances in our lives a collision of values, where immoral, unbiblical, or unethical commands conflict with God's values. But first, a word of caution. If you ever decide to disobey authority figures, government, employers, supervisors, parents, anyone who outranks you in life, 
It should be done soberly, with humility and wisdom. Because that also goes against another biblical principle. The principle to respect authority. Peter wrote, For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority. And Jesus taught, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. But there are those moments when our respect and honor for God, who we can't see, supersedes our fear of man and government, who we can see. And this is one of these moments. Just like Peter and John, when they, command, when they were commanded by the religious leaders of their time to not speak in Jesus' name, they replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? Before we move on, let's take a closer look at a specific scenario that I think has produced a collision of values for the people, for us, people of faith today. Now, this isn't the only example, but it flows so smoothly and naturally from this story that I couldn't ignore it. So, Consider how the resolve of Moses' parents to disobey the command compelled them to protect life. When we recognize God's immeasurable value that he has upon human life, in his eyes, no child is ordinary. Every conceived child is made in his image, possesses greatness and immense potential. Maybe that is what they were seeing. If that's what they saw, then we also, if that's what God sees, then we also must respect, value, and protect all life from natural birth to natural death, regardless of the laws our government may or may not pass. But how do we navigate this by faith? Practically speaking, think about it. When we genuinely empathize with the real fears and concerns of the men and the women, the families and the communities who deal with the intricate complexities and the multi-layered implications of unwanted pregnancy. How do we value and safeguard all of life? It's the same way that Moses, Moses' parents did, by faith. See, faith, the certainty that, that God is real and that God rewards that very foundation, that ground zero of faith, it comes in in that moment when it's messy and unclear, and man, I, I, it doesn't seem like any solution is right. I, I just can't figure it out. I know that this is what God says, but man, this is sure messy. I'm, cert, I'm uncertain, I'm unclear what to do. It's at that moment that faith can generate just the right amount of torque to overcome those fears and those concerns even when the solutions seem out of reach and unclear and uncertain. Because God exists, he's powerful. God rewards, he is good, he is wise. His plan can be trusted even when I don't know what good can come out of this. I'm thinking this, but man, this is what God says. I need to side with God. So what can faith in action look like in these instances? Perhaps the clearest way to express faith 
is to leave the outcomes of anything you decide to do in God's very capable hands. I mean, look at what he could do with a baby in a basket and put in a river. God's, I, I have to take my hands off and put it in your hands. He can do great things. Folks, he is real. He rewards. He is good. And so with that in mind, perhaps the next thing you can do in faith is pray. Pray for the culture and the values that respect human life. Pray for people who are in the midst of dealing with that conflict, dealing with that problem, making those difficult decisions. Offer practical assistance to those and emotional support for those who are facing those challenges. You can foster a culture of adoption as an alternative. You can practice safe, sacred life values in your daily interactions and relationships. Does that solve it all? Does that eliminate the conflict, the confusion, the uncertainty? No, it doesn't. But you know, here's what will give you that confidence to continue behaving in that way. God is real. God rewards. He can be trusted. He's good. He fulfills his promises. So Moses' parents, they rise up from the pages of the Bible and they serve as an inspiration to those of us who, who hesitate and are afraid to obey God, especially when powerful people or difficult circumstances challenge his values or threaten our safety. Their example encourages you that it's possible to live the life of faith that is pleasing to God successfully because it's been done before. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. In the book of Exodus, Moses' entire childhood unfolds in the first 10 verses of chapter two. And we get to verse 10, it concludes with Moses being weaned and taken to live with Pharaoh's daughter. Now, as the narrative progresses from verse 10 to verse 11, 40 years elapse between those two verses. Moses is now an adult. And it says in verse 11 of chapter 2 of Exodus, many years later, when Moses had grown up, he's now 40 years old, approximately, he went out to visit his own people the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. Three times in this section, it says that Moses saw the Hebrews as his own people. By this time, Moses somehow understood that even though he had been raised and educated as, a, as an Egyptian prince, that he wasn't Egyptian, that he was Hebrew, that he was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He identified with them so much that he took it personally and took matters into his own hands when, during his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. And after looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. Well, the next day when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend, Moses said to the one who had started the fight. The man replied, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? 
Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses was afraid, thinking everyone knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened, and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh. The writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he peels back the layer of this incident. And he exposes what was happening beneath the surface in Hebrews 11, verses 24 to 26. He writes, it was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. These verses suggest that Moses wasn't impulsively reacting in a fit of rage when he killed the Egyptian. I know it might read like that when you read Exodus's account, but Hebrews, whoa. By the time this happened, he had carefully contemplated the consequences of what was already brewing inside of him. And what these verses are telling us is that when, when Moses killed the Egyptian, it represented three things. First, it represented his rejection of his Egyptian identity. It's education, the culture, philosophy, and values that he received. He repudiated all of it. He wholeheartedly embraced his Hebrew identity, stood with God and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his forefathers, the, he was now a, he acknowledged that he was also a recipient of the promises God had made to them. When Moses killed the Egyptian, it represented his acceptance of the consequences of being a Hebrew. And this involved refusing the pleasures and the, the comforts, the conveniences, and the privileges he enjoyed as an adopted Egyptian prince, aligning himself and receiving the mistreatment, discomfort, and inconvenience of identifying with the people of Israel. When Moses killed the Egyptian, number three, it represented his declaration of what he really treasured and considered truly valuable. I'm sure you've heard of individuals who, like Moses, come to a place in their lives and they reject the societal norms they've felt restrained by and all of a sudden they just go off the deep and they go native. Like what just happened to that person? They just checked out of society. Some of them, they turned their backs on the ideal of the American dream, the three bedroom home, three bed, two bath home in favor of a simpler minimalistic life. Off the grid, they say. Living in a camper or a tiny home. Others are motivated because they just want purpose. And so, because they want a life that fulfills and a life that is consistent with their values, 
They might find their tribe among people who live communally, sharing their skills and income and property. Now, even though there's something admirable about that, I mean, I personally don't think I could do that. It pales in comparison to why Moses did what he did. When Moses unhitched his life from Egypt, it was a far more profound decision than just a personal lifestyle change. His decision was being energized and motivated by faith. But but how did it work? For his parents, faith that God was real and God rewards, it gave them the boldness to overcome their fears and to bravely defy Pharaoh's orders. But what about in this instance? How did faith work to help Moses peel away the grip of Pharaoh's powerful hand? To refuse Egypt's definition of success? To renounce a privileged position? How did faith generate the torque to choose oppression over pleasure? Where did he get this power from to find value in suffering instead of prosperity? Verse 26 tells us, he was looking ahead to his great reward. See, despite the harsh suffering that his fellow Hebrews and now he endured, Moses fixed his attention on God's great reward. Again, this is talking about the the promises that had been passed down the generations, starting with Abraham, to give them a homeland and to multiply them. And, And even though Moses didn't understand every detail about it, he didn't know when he would receive it, But do you know what he was certain of? Don't miss this. Moses' choice was based on the certainty that God is real and that God's rewards were greater than the rewards that Egypt offered. And so Moses made a choice. He chose God's identity esteeming it greater than being the prince of Egypt. He chose suffering with God's people, considering it to be more significant than the pleasures of Egypt. He chose God's reward, calculating it to be of greater worth than all the treasures of Egypt. And so the lesson from Moses' life has to do with how faith influenced his choices. Faith empowered Moses to make sacrificial choices and to endure suffering for those choices. Faith empowered Moses to make sacrificial choices and to endure the suffering because of those choices. See, that's one of the tells that we're living a life of faith. The life of faith will be marked by sacrificial choices. Just like Moses, when we choose to embrace who we are in Christ and what God has called us to be and who God has called us to be, we also invite suffering and discomfort, inconveniences into our lives. Here are some examples. 
Because as Jesus followers, we are supposed to march to the beat of a different drummer. Our values and the basis from which we make decisions, they're different. And so here are some possible scenarios that where we could see those. Now, you don't have to be Christian to make these decisions, but they do align with what we believe. Some, because of their faith and because of their values, they might turn down a lucrative opportunity for an op- a lucrative opportunity in exchange for an opportunity to serve their community. That costs them. They're sacrificing that decision. Or what about the sacrifice to turn down a desirable promotion because of it will cost your family to not have you around? That's the kind of sacrificial choice. It costs you. It hurts. It's uncomfortable. Some sacrifice the comforts of living in the States in order to bring the gospel to a developing country. Or what about choosing to respect an unloving husband because God has asked you? Or the choice to love a disrespectful wife because that's your God-given responsibility. See, in each one of these scenarios, it's humbling. In some instances, humiliating. It's uncomfortable. It's uncertain. For some of you who might have, it might, you might even remember the, the agony in making those choices to go with God, to align with God, to make the decision that God would have you make because of who he's called you to be. It's uncertain. And there's no guarantee either. There's no guarantee that if you make the right decision that you'll get yours in the end. That they'll respond in a positive light, in a positive way. So how do you do this? How do you live by faith in these scenarios? How do you, it's easy. You wait until you feel like it. No. None of those things you... Sometimes we feel like it. And so that's the problem with feelings. They're, they're too unstable. Our feelings are inconsistent. And ultimately, they're unreliable. What if you're just not feeling generous? Or compassionate or loving that day or at that moment? Where does one get the power to make the right decision, the sacrificial decision? Moses tells us, his example tells us it's by faith. Faith is that a more effective tool because even when those tough choices produce discomfort, involves sacrifice and uncertainty, faith gives you a certainty. Hey, God is real and God rewards. Even when I make that choice and it's hard, and I'm challenged by it, and there's something inside of me resisting it, here's what I know. God is real, and God rewards. It all comes back to that. If those two haven't been established, it makes no sense. You won't have the motivation or the power to even do the things that I've just listed. But why? Why would you endure the suffering of sacrificial decisions? Some of us do it for the pats in the back. The attaboys, the thank you. Man, I feel so good now that I just did that. I just made a sacrificial choice. Wow, I helped the person next to me in line. Help. Oh, it cost me some money. 
Now, you could do it for that, but I'm pretty sure those won't provide the motivation, the torque needed to keep living by faith. One commentary I read had this to say about Moses, that instead of occupying a line or two of hieroglyphics on some obscure tomb, Moses is memorialized in God's eternal book. Instead of being found in a museum as an Egyptian mummy, he is, a famous, he is famous as a man of God. Now, of course, being remembered and revered as a famous man of God is cool, but Moses wasn't exchanging the fame and fortune and respect of Egypt for that of Israel. Folks, that was not worth it to him. If, you're familiar, if anyone's familiar with, it, with the 40-year wilderness story, it was a thankless job. The people he sacrificed for and let out of Egyptian captivity, they turned on him, complained about him. Then what, they even wanted to replace him. And so if you were going to ask Moses why he sacrificed what he did, why he made those choices, he would say it was for a greater reward. He wanted the rewards that God had in store, God's promises, God's pleasure, God's approval, God's admiration. He would say, hey, suffering those things was worth it. God's rewards are worth it. Now that's motivating. And that is what provided the energy and the strength that he needed to make these decisions and to suffer the consequences of these decisions. This principle that we see here of giving up what is temporary and earthly in order to prioritize what is spiritual and eternal is all over the Bible. Jesus taught, sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it. This is also what the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl are about in Matthew 13. In both of these stories, a man sells everything he owns in order to buy something of incomparable worth. They're both teaching that the risk, the cost, the suffering, the sacrifice, the pain associated with sacrificing everything that is temporary is worth it if what you get in return is priceless. Let me give you some other examples. The temporary ache or pain of forgiving someone who's burned you, hurt you. But you decide, you know, I need to bury the hatchet because God has forgiven me. The, the momentary pain of staying put in a work, school, or home environment that is hostile to faith. You know, even though everybody's leaving, I need to stay because God calls me. God has called me to represent him. Or the short-term discomfort of going without your daily Starbucks fix so that someone else's need will be met. You see, in each of these sacrificial choices... They induce a measure of suffering. And as you're going into it, making that tough decision because of who you are in Christ, it's uncertain. It produces stress. Sometimes it can get ugly and uncertain. And there's no guarantee that the person is gonna reciprocate in the way that you expect. 
But Moses' example is telling us that if the prize is God's great reward, oh, it's so worth it. In those instances when it's tough to continue living that way, it provides the torque that you need to trust. Because this God is real and he rewards. And so Moses rises from the pages of the Bible and he serves as an inspiration to those of us who are making and continue to make these sacrificial choices, having to endure the suffering for those choices. His example encourages you by letting you know that living a life of faith in these instances, in these circumstances, these scenarios, it's possible. You can do it. Why? It's been done before. It's by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ and to own the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking ahead to his great reward. Do you need some torque to keep on going? Do you need some torque to keep hanging on to the promises of God? Well, faith emboldens you to overcome fear and bravely obey God. Faith empowers you to make sacrificial choices and endure the suffering for those choices. But that faith is based on two fundamental truths. God is real, and God rewards. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.